This week on Crossing Crown Radio, what is Christian Reconstruction? There are many mischaracterizations out there on the internet, especially regarding theonomy. So a couple of months ago, I put together a graphic for social media outlining the main points. I hope it's helpful. As always, I'm your host, Jason Garwood. Thanks again for listening to Crossing Crown Radio. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Psalm 127, verse 1. Welcome back to another episode here of Crossing Crown Radio. It's been a somewhat busy summer, but I wanted to sneak in another episode here, especially as it pertains to Christian Reconstruction. A few weeks ago, a couple of months back, I decided that I would take a you know raw file using some tools that are on the computer. <laughs> I'm sure you love the technical language here. And I wanted to make some graphics that explain Christian Reconstruction. And it's something that I've wanted to outline for a while to explain it so it's something that can be shared online. And uh, got a lot of great feedback on the graphic, which was nice. I wanted to put together what are the key components of Christian Reconstruction. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe eventually I'll get around to writing a book. That would be nice to put a book together describing these things in detail. I would especially want to make sure that there are scriptural references and things like that to help people see how we arrive to these conclusions, especially as theonomists, especially as those who adhere to these different uh, points of application, so to speak, of what might be called a systematic theology. And the, the a lot of people when they come to Christian Reconstruction, they will have maybe different points of nuance. They might include certain things that others might not emphasize as much. And so I wanted to be, obviously, uh, careful to nuance, careful to make sure it's explained. Obviously, when you're putting together something that goes on social media, especially when it's a picture, a, a graphic of sorts, there's only so much you can do. You can't get into the weeds on every little nuance of every little point. And so, you know, I, hopefully those who saw it would realize that that's the case. And just because I didn't say something doesn't mean I don't necessarily believe it or think it or wouldn't want to try to nuance it a certain way. So with that in mind, please know this is not exhaustive in any sense of the word. Uh, these are just concepts that I put together that I think are key concepts in each of the five, six subpoints of Christian Reconstruction, and I think they're worth discussing. Now, again, I even said five or six just now. There's typically five elements of Christian Reconstruction. You can go back to the work of Dr. Gary North and, and Gary DeMar, uh, some of like David Chilton, and even Rush Dooney himself and Bonson sort of put basically five categories together to describe Christian Reconstruction. And usually it's presuppositionalism, um, a reformed understanding, reformed theology, understanding of, of, of the sovereignty of God. There is also an understanding of covenant and what covenant entails. Theonomy, of course, is there, understanding God's law and post-millennialism. Those are usually the five categories that are put in place to describe Christian Reconstruction proper. And those are good and helpful things to do. Uh, I think one of the books that um, was put out many, many years ago, Christian Reconstruction, what is what it is and what it isn't, or something like that. Uh, I have the book behind me somewhere by North and Damar. Um, so you know, they get into a whole lot of things about the, the problem of neutrality and all of those things, and it's not really necessarily laid out in this fashion, but it's worth resourcing uh, and referencing. It's something you should have on your shelf for a resource. But I wanted to take a little bit of a different approach, especially, especially because it's obvious that Christian Reconstruction is growing by leaps and bounds. People come to this doctrinal, uh, th these sets of doctrines, through various means. Sometimes it's through a place like Reconstructionist Radio where they're listening to audiobooks or 
uh, perhaps someone who has picked up post-millennialism from Greg Bonson and then realized, oh, wait, he's a presuppositionalist, too. And, oh, wait, he's also a theonomist. And sort of the chips fall where they may on that regard. Uh, I was post-mill before I was really even that reformed. I had grown up a dispensationalist, and, and through you know Bible college and even the seminary, I realized that there are other views out there, and I should probably consider those things, and realized suddenly that, wait, no, I think a post-millennial understanding is actually way more faithful to Scripture. It certainly ties together Scriptures in, a, in what I believe to be a more coherent and, uh, uh, I guess, more intelligible fashion. We're not just guessing about prophecy and those types of things. But I became post-mill, then more reformed, and and I use reformed kind of loosely because that was the Mark Driscoll, John Piper days, where Reformation, or as far as, far as being reformed, it was you understood TULIP and you believed it. <laughs> and uh, I never had a problem with the L, by the way, in TULIP, but I after that I actually started to understand uh, uh, theonomy itself, so I came to theonomy through that. And then afterwards, I started to embrace presuppositionalism. And it was kind of in that time where I was understanding covenant theology a little bit more. I was broadening my understanding of Reformed theology. So that was my path. A lot of people come in it from different angles. They Maybe they grew up Reformed, and suddenly they understood Vantillian presupposition, presuppositionalism. They, they Obviously, growing up Reformed, you would be more predisposed to understanding the covenant. And things like that. And so people then would come in and, oh, well, here's post-mill, and they kind of come in that way. Uh, everybody kind of goes in in and out from a different perspective. And what I think what is beautiful about Christian, Re- Christian Reconstruction, obviously presupposing that it's the most faithful to the Scriptures in terms of developing a systematic theology and understanding of the Word of God, understanding application and those types of things, I think not only is it faithful, but I think it just, they all work together quite nicely. For example, when you understand presuppositionalism, you begin to then apply that to different things, and you realize, well, wait, if we're presupposing the kingdom of God, of course Christ is king now, and we're not waiting for him to come back and be king. You suddenly become post-mill. Or you take presuppositionalism and you apply it, uh, sort of what Rushton did with Van Til, you start to apply it to to law and social theory, political theory, and you realize, wait, God's law is much better than the law of humanism. So it kind of has a trickle-down effect. You end up understanding the, the covenantal nature of history. You start to have a bigger picture of the sovereignty of God as he moves uh, moves the, the heart of a king like, like the river, Proverbs tells us. So I think what's great about Christian Reconstruction is that all of these things kind of fit together, and they fit together in a way that is coherent, um, it co- it's cohesive, they, they, they speak to one another. There are points in my outline here that one might insinuate another, um, there's connecting points and so on, and I think that's what's genius about the modern Christian Reconstructionist movement, which is growing in number. You probably see, if you're at least on social media in some fashion, there are a lot of critics of theonomy, and those critics continue to tell us that theonomy is dead, but they can't stop talking about it, (laughs) which is an interesting paradox, I guess. But it's not dead, it's growing. And it's growing because people, young people, are especially wanting to hear, especially in pulpits, they want to hear the victory of Christ. They want to hear the comprehensive nature of, of the biblical worldview. They want to they know that their culture, their, their culture-building efforts are going to be sustained by the Holy Spirit as God channels his covenantal uh, purpose and management of history uh, in such a way as to glorify himself and, and utilize his people. I, I think that's amazing, and young people are seeing the failure of pietism and uh, statism and humanism, and they're they're seeing the failure of of evangelicalism, e- evangelicalism, which is just squishy and doesn't have a coherent social theory to offer up. And they're seeing all of these problems, and they realize that the Bible does have a solution. And then they start to realize, oh wait, I'm not the only one that thought that. There have been others who have seen these solutions in the Bible. And then 
here they are. They find Reconstructionist radio or Crossing Crown radio, or they listen to to to, to the uh, Canon app, or they're 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 learning all about um, whether it's Theopolis guys, whatever they're learning, and wherever they find it, they realize, wait, there are a lot of people, <laughs> there are a lot of people who do believe that the Bible has answers for all of life, and that's where Christian Reconstruction rests its case ultimately on tota scriptura and sola scriptura. So having said that, I guess as a preface, um, I wanted to talk about what I made, (laughs) the graphic that I designed for social media, because I've had some questions from people and, you know, Christian reconstruction itself uh, was always something to be built on. Uh, Dr. North, the late Dr. North and, and Rush Dooney himself and even Bonson knew that they were just, they were trailblazers and they knew that, you know, hacking through the weeds, they're doing, doing that work right now and others are going to have to come and pave the roads behind them and, you know, beautify, beautify the path. And I think that's where we who are in the, I'm not really a second generation reconstructionist, but sort of like a third or fourth wave reconstruction here now in the year 2022 the post-pandemic reconstructionists, we have an opportunity to, to pave that road. We have an opportunity to build on what those men had provided for us. And of course, those guys, Rush Tooney would acknowledge this, you know, many of them built upon the Puritans who built upon uh, Geneva. And much of Calvin's work can be credited to the work of St. Augustine. So uh, we see a trace of this historically and this isn't anything necessarily new, but we do find ourselves in, in a unique cultural situation where we can uh, put together and put forth and posture in the public, small plug for the Virginia Center for Public Theology, we can put together for the public a, a coherent systematic theology which deals with philosophy, which deals with, with uh, social theory, political theory, economic theory, all of it, And we can say, this is what the Lord God says, and this is how we can be faithful to him, and this is how we can be blessed by him. So we have the opportunity to do that. So that's why I made the graphic, and, you know, I'm going to get to it a little bit later. I I made a graphic on abolitionism because while it does sort of mostly deal with the sin of abortion— Abolition is the Christian response to national sin. How do we think covenantally as a nation? How does God deal with nations? And then, and then what, what is the church supposed to do? And I'll talk about that at the end. And I don't necessarily think that is necessary. It, it's not necessarily a plank that needs to be included in the overarching uh, outline of Christian Reconstruction. It's probably just an application, which is totally fine. But And I, and I realize I even said that when I posted it. And by the way, that's on my Facebook page. You can It's pinned at the very top. You can see what I said there. But I also added Reformational philosophy, uh, which is a, a distinctly Christian philosophy, which philosophy, of course, deals with the sciences. Uh, it's, it's what comes before. And now I added that because I have been immersed in the uh, <laughs> Dutch Reformed world this year. I just never really studied those guys head on, uh, Kuiper, Van Prinsterer, and uh, even Herman Deweyverd. I, I never really studied them head on, and so I've been taking this year to do that. And it's been a huge blessing, and so I thought I want to include that because while it does have some overlap with presuppositionalism, presuppositionalism is often thought of in terms of an apologetic, and an apologetic, of, of course, is a defense of the faith, but there are philosophical considerations that go with it. And so I think they dovetail nicely. I put it, to, I put it there uh, intentionally, and I realize that critics may not like that, but I don't really care. <laughs> That's on them. So the graphic, and again, I don't have time to do every, every single thing in exhaustive detail. That'll be for a book someday, but at least for the meantime, I'm going to highlight these things, and I want to explain them so people understand what they are. The first one is presuppositionalism, and that is simply biblical apologetics, a defense of the faith, uh, to use uh, Van Til's book title. And the first thing there is we learn that the self-contained equal ultimacy of the triune God is the absolute and necessary starting point for all ontological reflection and metaphysical discourse. And what do we mean by that? 
if you go to frame-poithrus.org, John Frame and Vern Poithrus have put together what's called the Van Til Glossary, and I suggest studying it. And you can learn a little bit about the language of Van Til and presuppositionalism, uh, specifically the, the, the self-contained. God is self-contained. What do we mean? Well, in Van Til's language, we were talking about absolute personality. Uh, the biblical God is absolute, uh, and, and we, we say the aseity of God. He is ase. He's self-existent. So God doesn't depend on something outside of himself for his own existence. Uh, he just is. God just simply is. He is the I am. And he is self-sufficient in the sense that he does not need anything. He doesn't have to go searching for knowledge. Uh, he is not he, he is uh, not in need of discovery <laughs> because he is self-contained. So for him to be self-contained is to speak of his absoluteness, uh, where where there's no uh, all that is all that is in God is God, that sort of language. So he is self-contained and there is equal ultimacy in the triune God. I would point you to Bosserman's book, um, The Vindication of, of Christian Paradox. The Trinity and the Vindication of Christian Paradox, I believe it is called. It's a difficult book, but it's an, an amazing book. And he examines uh, Van Til's presuppositionalism. And I think he does a masterful job showing why it's important in some of the things that Van Til developed. Uh, understanding that the, in order to solve certain things that we view as paradoxes, you have to presuppose the triune God. You have to presuppose uh, that there is one God in three persons. Now, when we say equal ultimacy, we mean that in the triune Godhead, there is no struggle with unity and diversity. There is no struggle with universals and particulars. There's no struggle with the one and the many because God is equally ultimate in that regard. He is both one and many. And based on that truth, based on the absolute personal God, um, God is thinking, speaking, uh, he's, he's judging, um, he acts and loves. Um, he is absolute and personal in that regard. But based on that, this he, God, is the absolute and necessary starting point. So that's what presuppositionalism is all about. God is the starting point. And he's the starting point for all ontological reflection, ontology simply referring to the nature of being. In order to discuss being and who we are, what is creation, you know, sort of the, again, what are we, when we experience God's world and look around God's world and his created order, all ontological reflection, as we think about and reflect upon who we are, God is the necessary starting point, okay? And so not just being in sort of the physical, tangible sense, but also metaphysical discourse. When we're talking, um, we've moved from the naive realm to, and to, naive meaning like pre-theoretical, and then we move into the theoretical realm where we start to, to discourse on metaphysics, God is the starting point. He is the absolute starting point. And what we might call revelational epistemology, that our knowing, we're going to get to that in a minute, but our knowing, everything funnels out from there. The triune God who is equal, who is ultimate, he's self-contained, he's absolute, everything stems from him. Now, the second point of presuppositionalism is that man in his sin has posited an epistemological pluralism which is a negation of the immutable word of God. Now, this is sort of my understanding of Van Til in, in his book, um, A Survey of Christian Epistemology. And I'm going to quote this for you so you can see. Van Til writes, When Eve listened to the tempter, she therefore not only had to posit an original epistemological pluralism, but also had an original metaphysical pluralism. She had to take for granted that as a time-created being, she could reasonably consider herself to be sufficiently ultimate in her being, so as to warrant an action that was contrary to the will of an eternal being. That is, she not only had to equalize time in eternity, but she had to put time above eternity. It was in time that Satan told her the issue to be settled. He said that it still remained to be seen whether God's threats would come true. The experimental 
uh, method was to be employed. Only time could tell. This attitude implied that God was no more than a finite God. If he were thought of as absolute, uh, it would be worse than folly for a creature of time to try out the interpretation of God in the test tube of time. If he were thought of as eternal, such an undertaking was doomed as failure, because in that case, history could be nothing but the expression of God's will. And in that case, man's humanity would be destroyed. Now, prior to that passage, he's, he's arguing about Adam and Eve. Uh, they, were, they were theists at first, but they, they took the, their interpretation, they took God's interpretation of themselves and who they are and the animals for granted. Uh, the tempter comes in, and he offers up an antithetical, uh, an anti-theistic theory of reality, and then sin entered into the world. So Van Til argues that neutrality is negation. So man, in his sin, is always looking for a pluralistic understanding of the world. He does not want God's understanding of the world. In his sin, he posits a theory of knowledge that is something different than God, something different than revelational epistemology. Struggling with that word for some reason. Um, he, He doesn't want that. He wants some other thing. Uh, I'm going to quote Van Til again here. He says, Eve was, op- uh, uh, Eve was obliged to postulate an ultimate epistemological pluralism and contingency before she could even proceed to consider the proposition made to her by the devil, or otherwise expressed, Eve was compelled to assume the equal ultimacy of the minds of God, of the devil, and of herself. And this surely excluded the exclusive ultimacy of God. This, therefore, was a denial of God's absoluteness epistemologically. Thus, neutrality was based on negation. Neutrality is negation, end quote. So when you negate, when you think that there is knowledge to be had outside of what God has revealed as the equal, ultimate, triune God, the absolute starting point, when you think that there is a knowledge that is is on par with his ultimacy, you have posited a pluralism. And then you negate. In that act, you negate the word of God. So know that when we're talking about presuppositionalism. The third point ties into that. Christianity's foundation of revelational epistemology is the essential sine qua non of all intelligibility. So the foundation is God has revealed himself in his creation word, incarnate word, and scripturated word. And that is the absolute, the sine qua non. That is the absolute necessary starting point for any sort of intelligibility. Any sort of understanding, of coherence, of knowledge, uh, predication, induction, deduction, um, all of the uniformity we see in God's created world, all of it starts from a revelational epistemology. It is essential, it is absolutely necessary, and as Christians, we need to argue it as such. The fourth point, as a consequence of God's self-disclosure, Scripture is the self-attesting, inerrant, infallible, and ultimate ground motive which stands authoritatively over all men. Now, this is where it ties into Reformational philosophy a little bit. As a consequence of God's self-disclosure, God has disclosed himself. He has revealed himself. But as a consequence of that revelation, we have what's called Scripture, the inscripturated word. And Scripture itself is self-attesting. It validates its own authority, and that's what ultimacy means in that regard. Uh, It has to be self-attesting. It is inerrant, meaning it does not have any errors. It is infallible, which means it is incapable of having any errors. And it is the ultimate ground motive. Now, again, that's Reformational philosophy. That's Dewey-Verd language. The ultimate ground motive means that Scripture itself, as the vehicle of God's self-disclosure given to us by the Holy Spirit, it is the only way to coherently predicate from. That's the, it's the ground motive. It is the absolute starting point of any sort of, of theoretical thought, um, any sort of deduction or induction. Um, we don't argue to the authority of Scripture. We argue from the authority of Scripture. It stands authoritatively over all men everywhere at all times. 
It is the Word of God. It is a revelation of God. The Holy Spirit used it in such a way as to preserve it throughout time. It is the Word of God. And that's what it tells us about itself. And that's how we, as Christians, uh, live our lives, based on the authority of the Word of God, not the authority of the Church. We're not papists. And it's not the authority of any man. It is the ultimate ground motive, meaning meaning that meaning, which is imputed, uh, imputed to us, meaning is imputed. We are not the ones who give meaning. We receive meaning. Uh, that is how we live our lives. That's the ground motive. And then fifthly, regarding presuppositionalism, just another point here. In defending the faith, Christians do not reason to God. They reason from God, because only their Christian world and life view supplies the necessary preconditions for all predication, i.e., laws of logic, uniformity in nature, law, norms. By the way, there is a difference. Law is fixed. Norms is what ought to be. So the Bible is what gives us normality, what gives us the norms of what should be. Uh, Also, structure and direction. I think we'll talk more about that later. Ethics and morality, and so on. So Reason, which is just one of the 15 aspects of creation. This is that that logical deduction, that logical uh, aspect of creation, that reason. Um, we don't reason to God. That was the error of the existentialists and others uh, from Descartes onwards. We don't reason to God. We reason from God. We can only reason because of God is another way of saying it. And the Christian world and life view thus supplies all of the preconditions that are required to do any sort of theoretical thought. And that is presuppositionalism. Now, again, if you have questions or comments and want to want to send me a message, please do. You can do that through the Cross and Crown radio page on Facebook. I'd be happy to, you know, expand upon this or anything like that. Um, my, my, my hope is to make this more understood. <laughs> and it's a difficult task because it's some fairly heavy stuff. But the second point in Christian Reconstruction, right after presuppositionalism, is the sovereignty of God, and that is the glory and salvation of God. God's sovereignty over all things, and especially his sovereignty with regard to um, salvation and how that's applied. So the first point goes like this, and again, you're going to hear some echoes of presuppositionalism here, but the inexhaustible triune God whose self-existence, ase, the aseity of God, whose self-existence precludes him from relating to the created order on the basis of some innate or ontological deficiency, meaning that God doesn't relate to the world because he's he's got problems and he can only relate to the world as a way to sort of fill up what's lacking in him. His self-existence precludes that. He, he's unable to do that. He does not need the creation to fill a void, so to speak. But the inexhaustible triune God stands over creation as the immutable, right, immutable, unchanging, impassable. Uh, He he doesn't just go with the flow and have emotions because we did something on earth. Uh, He is impassable in that regard. He is eternal. He is simple. Uh, The simplicity of God, divine simplicity, referring to the fact that God is holy God. He's not consisting of parts, but he is holy God. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy, (laughs) H-O-L-Y. And absolute sovereign being, self-explanatory, whose glory is immense and whose holiness is pure. I wanted to simply highlight the the beauty and the magnificence of God and his sovereignty and who he is in and of himself. His glory is immense. His holiness is pure. Uh, he He is radiant in that regard. So the sovereignty of God starts there with who God is. Second point, as the omnipotent ruler of history, the creator God actively superintends the cosmos by spirit and word, governing all things so that his glory can prevail in creation. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He rules and governs over history. And as the transcendent ruler over history, he is also imminently governing history, superintending the entire world through the vehicle of his Holy Spirit and his word. And he governs all things so that his glory can prevail. So his glory is victorious in creation. 
Self-explanatory, I think. Third point. The sin which entangles man, that covenantal estrangement given to humanity by Adam, our federal head, our covenant head, uh, that's what sin is. It's an estrangement from the covenant. It entangles us. It messes our relationships. It messes how we view ourselves, the world, each other, and God. All of that is undone at the cross of Christ. So note that. At the cross, all of that is undone. The estrangement, the covenantal uh, ambiguities of how we understand ourselves, how we understand God, understand his world, how we understand each other, all of that is undone at the cross. And thus, man is restored to his creator, whose image he can now, unencumbered by covenantal death, fully bear and express. So the cross flips all of that over. It brings us back to the covenant, where we are in the covenant because of the blood of Christ. We're back to the relationship that we should have had, had we not sinned at the very beginning. And as image bearers now, we can fully express. We bear that image and we express that image because we are to be like God. Uh, And God is a creator, so we should create in those types of things. The fourth point underneath the sovereignty of God in terms of salvation is that the salvation that God has offered through Christ can only be received by grace alone, through faith alone, and that in Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice alone. This is basically Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, through faith. It's not a work that we earn. Uh, We are saved by his grace, his sovereign grace, and even the faith that we exercise, the repentance and faith that we exercise as responsible image bearers, uh, we, we are elected, we are chosen, we are brought into this covenant by grace. All of that's implied there. And it's done through faith. And that faith isn't a belief in self. It's not a belief in belief. It's belief that Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice alone is what atones for sin. So we believe that he died for our sins and he rose rose again. That is the heart of the gospel message. Um, He's ascended as king of kings and lord of lords. He has been vindicated. He is now the ruler. So we trust in him and we trust that his work is sufficient to not only forgive us our sins because we die with him, but also to uh, give us a restored image so that we can move on with the cultural mandate. The fifth aspect here, the fifth of the uh, sovereignty of God discussion. The end for which man was created was for the glory and enjoyment of God in all things lawful. Note that. (laughs) For the glory and enjoyment of God. You can't take something perverted like pornography and say, ah, well, I'm doing it for the glory and enjoyment of God. Well, no, it's unlawful. But in all things lawful, as the elect of mankind serves God in carrying out the dominion mandate, republished in the New Testament as the Great Commission. So the, the, the cultural mandate, which was put in place with Adam and then republished again with Noah and, and even Abraham, and it goes on through Scripture, Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, has republished for us. We are brought into that, that glory, that enjoyment of all things lawful. We are brought into this dominion mandate, which is another way of talking about the Great Commission. So that's the sovereignty of God, uh, the glory of God, the salvation of God, and what he does. And obviously, again, there could be so much more said about the doctrine of predestination, uh, the, the, the uh, doctrine of effectual calling. All of those things could be brought into this. But again, you can only say so much on an infographic, um, but those are aspects of it too. So presuppositionalism, the sovereignty of God, and then I'm calling this covenantal history. This is the third point in Christian Reconstruction. Covenantal history, which is a distinctly Christian view of history and defining what history itself is, and not in Marxist historical terms where they absolutize the economic aspect of life. The covenantal history starts with this point. The triune creator of the cosmos is entirely sovereign and authoritative over time, space, and matter. Self-explanatory, right? He's the the triune creator. We can't even do anything apart from him anyway. But he's entirely sovereign, and he's entirely authoritative over time itself, space, and matter. His throne consists of righteousness and justice, the ethical and the judicial, 
That's a way of shorthanding covenant is God's management of history through his throne, and that being the righteousness and justice of God. The second point is history is the covenantal arrangement of God's sovereign plans, purposes, and goals. So history is not uh, to be viewed as like a brute fact that is uninterpreted, that we just go and we experience history, and this is sort of the karmic cyclical view of history with no purpose, there's no plan, there's no goal, uh, we're just here on this ride for, you know, 70 years or so, give or take. But that's not the Christian confession. Uh, we believe that history is, is actually the covenantal arrangement or even the covenantal expression. I like to say the covenantal management. Uh, it's a management of God's sovereign plans and purposes and goals. He has sovereign plans. He has sovereign purposes. Uh, you know, he declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah says. He has specific goals. The end for which God created man is, according to the Catechism, to, to love God and enjoy him forever, uh, to glorify God and enjoy him, enjoy him for, forever. So we have a distinctly view, uh, a distinctly Christian view of history based on that. The third point is that human action in the world is always and in every way tied to God by virtue of God's initiation of covenant. So all men everywhere are in covenant, whether they like it or not. You're either a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. Those who are covenant keepers are only as such because of Christ and his work. But the rest of mankind who lives in a state of unregeneracy is a covenant breaker. And so all human action in the world is always tied to that. It's inescapably tied to, to covenant. Covenant is the thing where it basically binds the created, the creation and the creator. Um, you think of Romans chapter 1. Covenant is, is God's self-disclosure in history and creating man. Um, it's a boundary we can't pass. We can't but pass the law side. That comes from God. But as, as the subject side of things, a little bit of philosophy discussion here, but as the subject side, we, we experience God's creation and, but everything we do, we live and move and have our being in a certain context, and that's his historical context, and that historical context is, is the covenant, um, the covenant made with Adam and then expressed through history. The fourth point is the development of history will by necessity always be done by man, either as a covenant keeper or covenant breaker, kind of already touched on that, and this is determined by the ethics of God's law word, of which Christ himself is the judge. So history is a development. It's the unfolding of God's sovereignty. It's the unfolding of his plans and purposes and goals, as we mentioned. But that development will always be done by man. And that development, what we call the direction of the law, is either going to be in worship and service to the creator or the worship and service of man or some idol. But it's going to develop. History is going to develop. It's just a question of who's developing it, the covenant keeper or the covenant breaker. And the development, whether it's going to be positive and, and like positive sanctions or negative sanctions, is always and in every way determined by the ethics of God's law word. And Christ is the judge of that. As king, Christ is the judge of that. And the ethics of his revelation, his law word, is the determining factor. This is Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. There's blessings and there's curses, and those are dependent upon our development, our sanctification. Uh, history, God is sanctifying history, and he's doing it through the vehicle of man and his people. The fifth point of covenantal history and understanding covenant. As dominion-oriented people, the future of God's people is determined, like the past, by the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work of applying Christ's redemption to man and his institutions. So we are in covenant with God. That means we are de facto dominion-oriented people. That's why I chose that language there. And the future of that is determined, just like the past is determined, but the future is determined by the Spirit's sanctifying work. And he, the Holy Spirit, sanctifies us by applying Christ's redemption to us, and as a result, kind of as a consequence of that, we then 
have the sanctifying work applied to our institutions so we can do business, we can do economics, we can, we can do politics, we can do all of these aspects of life because the Spirit has wrought change in the hearts of men. So that's kind of an overview of covenantal history. The fourth point of Christian Reconstruction is theonomy. Theonomy. And here we're just talking about the ethics of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, this is like the L in TULIP. It's the most controversial <laughs> aspect of Christian Reconstruction. It seems like your average nine marks evangelical type will tolerate post-millennialists. They will tolerate covenant, even though they're primarily Baptists. Uh, they'll tolerate presuppositionalism, but they won't tolerate theonomy. And that's because they have a, a, a terrible view of it and hoping to do an episode on that soon. But theonomy has, I, I put together these five points. Again, not exhaustive, but important points to hang your hat on. The first one, the law of God is the expression of the immutable will and character of God for the created order and is therefore binding on all men. God's law is the expression of the immutable will and character of God. Now, when we say God's law, I'm talking about Yahweh's law, the Psalm 19 aspect, where there is an overarching law for creation. Dewey would talk about light going through a prism and all of those different colors or aspects of our created reality. That's, that's what we swim and move in, but we can't cross that boundary. But there is a law that stems from the immu- uh, immutability of God, his will, what he desires for creation, and his character, who he is. And that is for the created order. And because of that, it's binding on all men. That law transcends any circumstance. We're not talking about situational ethics here. We're talking about fixed ethics because it comes from God himself. So theonomy starts there. The second point, the salvation Christ grants to men by grace through faith is a deliverance from the penalty of sin's use of the law to condemn. It's a deliverance from that penalty and is not a deliverance from the obligation of obedience to his law. So <laughs> shouldn't be at all controversial, but you're saved by grace through faith, faith, not so you cannot obey his law, but so that you can. You have been restored. The Holy Spirit has written his law on your heart as a regenerate Christian, a regenerate covenant Christian. You're not delivered from the obligation to obey the law. That is not a deliverance at all. That's actually God appending his entire purpose, uh, going against himself in that regard, which is an impossibility. But the salvation, it gets you out of the penalty of sin, And sin uses the law, the power of sin is death, Paul says, but sin uses the law to condemn. And when when we're, we're saved by grace through faith, we are brought out of the penalty so that we can live in light positively sanctioned by the law of God. And there is a difference. Third point of theonomy. As Savior and King Jesus Christ in his present session as ruler of the nations, ruler of all kings, Revelation says, has upheld and currently upholds the validity of the law for his kingdom as a guide for obedience, a conviction for sin, and as a standard for civil procedure. Three forms, three uses of the law. This is basic reform theology. Anybody who says they're reformed and does not hold to at least this, (laughs) some call it general equity, but, I mean, you, you can't really call yourself reformed. As Savior and King, Christ in his present session, he is, he, he is seated on high, he is in session as ruler of the nations, and he upholds, and he currently upholds it, by the way, he's upheld it in the past and does so now, the validity of his law. His law has a purpose, and it, it helps us as a guide for obedience so we know what holiness looks like. Holiness looks like not committing adultery and cultivating a godly family and so on and so forth. It's a guide for obedience. It's also a conviction for sin. Sometimes we talk about the positive aspect of the law and also the negative aspect of the law. Thou shalt not and thou thou shall. And it helps us with conviction for sin. So we we know how to define sin, how to confess sin, how we can pour ourselves out like David did in Psalm 51. You need to know the law so you understand what it is the sin is and how you've transgressed it. And then third thing is the standard for civil procedure. 
And this is obviously by far the most controversial, but what we are saying is that God's law does apply in the civil realm, that that the jural function of the state, I don't even like the phrase state, but the, the civil magistrate, the civil ruler whose job is simply justice, um, that procedure, whatever that looks like, I believe in the theocratic judiciary, I'll explain myself someday on that, but we, we don't... Uh, we don't say that, well, everybody has to obey God's law personally, but then when it comes to politics, the government, whatever that is, can do whatever they want. No, they should follow God's law because it is wisdom in the sight of the nations, says Deuteronomy 4. The fourth point of theonomy I put out here is the, the new covenant, the newer covenant, surpasses the older covenant in glory, power, and finality, setting aside the shadowy elements pertaining solely to Israel's special privileges as a separate nation until the coming of the Messiah. This is a massive, there, there's so much confusion on this. Yes, the new covenant surpasses the old covenant in glory and power and finality because we have Christ. We have, we're not looking at the shadow of Christ, we're looking at Christ himself. And the shadows were those special privileges that Israel had as a separate nation. So land laws, seed laws, temple laws, all of those things that were often called ceremonial in nature were all scaffolding to get us to, to Christ who has brought us into his new, new covenant home. Um, he's the builder and maker is God. The one who Abraham was looking for is, is the house Christ built, which is the church, the people of God. But as Hebrews tells us, the, the blood of bulls and goats, um, the, the Levitical aspect of the law, those things are, uh, they're obsolete now. They don't, they don't apply. There are principles we can probably take from them, but they're simply principles. And it's not, to be enforced by the civil magistrate. And the fifth point deals with civil rulers. Civil rulers are morally obligated before the throne of heaven to enforce the law of God found in the Holy Scriptures and the general equity of Moses contained therein that pertain to magistrates and their duties to award restitution, punish criminals, and enforce contracts, all in proportionality to the lex talionis. That's a lot. But civil rulers are obligated before God. They are to enforce the law of God. Um, I would hold that again as the theocratic judiciary where we don't need legislation, we don't need executive power, we need judicial power. That is restitution, punishing criminals, you know, perhaps even the death penalty in certain cases, and enforcing contracts that are made, business, personal, whatever. And that is an obligation from the throne of heaven. That is how you properly understand Romans chapter 13. And Lex Taliana simply refers to the eye for an eye. Um, and, and it's not meant like in a literal sense. It, it's talking about proportionality and justice and um, how you dole out uh uh, what's the word? Restitution. How you how you do that to restore somebody. Those are the principles. So that is theonomy. Again, nutshell version, basic key points, but there's a coherence to it. The fifth thing, as we continue the podcast, it's already, I think, around 50 minutes now, but we're going to keep going. Postmill, often referred to affectionately as debt postmill. Postmillennialism is a victorious eschatology, and it's built on these five things. First, History is intricately governed by God, and all that God intends to accomplish, he will, in fact, accomplish. We've already dealt with a lot of those things in the previous points, but starting with God and his covenantal history, it's governed by God, no doubt, and what God intends to do, he will, in fact, do. What he intends to accomplish, he will, in fact, accomplish. Not really that I mean, I guess unless you're an open theist, that's not really that complicated. But number two, Jesus was who he said he was. Key point here. And he brought what he said he brought. Namely, he is the Messiah who brought the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. He was the Christ, the anointed one. The Messiah, anointed in a, in a very priestly and royal overtones, are embedded in those words. But he said what he said he was. Uh, he said he was... 
he said who he said he was to people, and he brought what he said he brought, and he told people that he is bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Pretty simple. Post mill starts there. Number three, Jesus did not obfuscate or equivocate when he told his followers to disciple all nations and peoples, assuming its success and utter completion. So there's no obfuscation when he told them, hey, go disciple the nations. Go make the nation itself a disciple of me, the people groups, individually and as a collective, as they confess nationally covenant with him. They are to be disciples. He wasn't obfuscating that. It wasn't unclear. And he wasn't equivocating either. Like he said one thing, he meant another. No, he meant to disciple the nations. And in that statement, he is assuming it's success. And he, he assumes it's success because he's given us what we need. And he assumes that it'll be complete because yet again, he set out a goal. This is what you are to do. This is one of the most powerful arguments for post-millennial uh, eschatology is because Jesus didn't obfuscate or equivocate on this command to disciple the nations. And if the nations are not discipled yet, we have to wonder, well, then why not? <laughs> because we have work to do. Number four, on post-mill, Jesus ascended to the throne of heaven as David's son and David's Lord, referencing Psalm 110.1 there, by the way, which Jesus talks about in the Gospels. But Jesus ascended to that throne, the throne of heaven, David's throne. David's throne is in heaven because David's throne that was on earth was taken away, Hosea tells us. So that was only an extension of the heavenly throne. That was yanked back because Christ the King was coming. But Jesus was David's son, an heir of David's, right? Great, 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 great grandson. But he's also David's Lord because he's the God-man. He's God in the flesh. And he ascended to this throne, Jesus did, in order for God the Father to make Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. God wanted to make Christ's enemies a footstool for his feet. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He shall reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. This is the victory of the gospel promised in the book of Psalms, places like Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 72, Psalm 110, and all sorts of other places where it's confessed that Yahweh is sovereign over the nations. Uh, the very end of Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm 82 as well. But Jesus is there now, and he is there as the God-man conquering his enemies through the work of the church, the preaching of the gospel. And those enemies will be made into a footstool for his feet. And he either conquers his enemies and by making them perish in history, this is Psalm 83, or uh, he turns them around and they're humiliated and put to shame to such a degree that they actually repent and they want to follow the name of God. So he makes them a friend. But they are enemies currently. There are enemies out there. The last great enemy is death, which will be put under his feet at the resurrection. But here, uh, Post Mill confesses Christ is Lord now. History is unfolding in accordance with his sovereign plan and dictates, and uh, the enemies are going to be put under his feet. That is a promise. The fifth aspect of post-mill. Jesus will not cease reigning until all enemies are defeated in history. The last enemy, death, will be supplanted at the final resurrection and final judgment. Accidentally got in front ahead of myself there, but... His reign is now, and he will not stop reigning until that is accomplished. Eschatological universalism, B.B. Warfield called it. But he's going to put his enemies under his feet. He's going to conquer the world. Christ will be king, uh, is king, but he will be acknowledged as king in all the world at some point in history, and it could be a couple thousand years from now. Now, those, all of those points are basically the traditional understanding of Christian Reconstruction, and I'm fine with that. But I added a, a sixth one <laughs> because I just found it helpful, and that is Reformational philosophy. So if you're going to send hate mail because I did this, don't. <laughs> you don't need to send anything. You can just casually move on. But this is a distinctly Christian philosophy, and I think it's important because we, we, need, a, we need a Christian philosophy. And how we shape the structure of reality, or how we perceive the structure of reality, I should say, is important. 
And we already have sort of the presuppositional angle, but this is a different angle. It's a little bit more of a philosophical angle. It's something I want to write about in the future. I, no doubt in my mind, R.J. Rushdoony, he wrote the, the uh, foreword to Dewey Verd's work on, on the Twilight of Western Thought, and he had great respect for Herman Dewey Verd, and, and Van Til did as well, um, himself a Dutchman. So the Dutchmen, they were, they, you know, they, they had a handle on this. And I think, I think it's just important. And having been reading it and steeped in it and just really digging into the reformational philosophy, I, I've really grown to just love it. And I, I want to share that with you here because I think, again, it fits into the larger framework of Christian Reconstruction. But first point of reformational philosophy is this. Philosophical insight into the structure of reality is only possible with knowledge of who man is, and such knowledge is intertwined with the knowledge of God. Therefore, all theoretical thought requires a supertemporal, religiously indissoluble ground motive. There's a lot there, but let me explain. If you want to know the world and, and understand the world around you, not even just knowing yourself, but even understanding trees and rocks and water and all of that, you, you have to know who you are. Be, because you, the self, the ego that's in you, is interpreting. You, you are... Uh, the subject of God's creation, and you are, as a subject, looking out at the objects of the world, and you're trying to interpret them. And Dewey ever talked about the 15 different aspects of creation, all the way from the numerical to the pistical, everything in between. Um, animals only function in a certain category. Things only function in a certain category. But humans function in all the categories because we're the crown of creation, Psalm 8. But if you want insight into this reality... The insight starts with the knowledge of who man is. And as Calvin pointed out in the very beginning of his institutes, such knowledge is intertwined with the knowledge of God. To know who you are, you have to know who God is. And God has revealed himself. And those things work together. And because of that, all theoretical thought, and by, and by theoretical thought, we're simply saying, you're not just experiencing the world as you cruise through your day but you're thinking deeply about the things of the world, that's theoretical thought, where you start to extrapolate meaning and orderliness and all of these other things. But all theoretical thought, when you start to do this, it requires something. And it requires a supertemporal, meaning something that is above time or this current situation. And it requires something that's religiously indissoluble. You can't you, you, it's something that's firm. It has to be, and it's always religiously indissoluble. It's something that's just permanent and fixed, and that's because there is something in the human heart, which I'm going to get to in a second, that puts that into practice. And it's a ground motive, meaning in Vantillian language, it's a presupposition, but it's super temporal. It's outside of our current time, and it's religiously indissoluble. It's fixed. It's a religiously motivated ground motive that transcends the space and time that we're in right this second. I'm going to build on that here. The second point is this. The human heart is the center of man from which springs forth the super-rational, super-temporal religious ground motives that shape man's world and life view. Meaning this. Proverbs 4.23, I think it's 23, the heart... Out, out, out of the heart flow the issues of life. The heart is the center of man. The, our modern world wants to put the heart somewhere else. The, the, what makes you you isn't your mind or isn't your anatomy. That seems to be the case today. Is your anatomy is what matters more <laughs> and your feelings about that. But the human heart is the center. And the Hebraic understanding of humanity and man to be made in the image of God. The heart is the seat of all of everything, your volition, your mind, your predication, your rationalization, your feelings. Although sometimes the Hebrews would talk about feelings coming from your bowels, just sort of your, your gut instinct, so to speak. But the human heart is that center. But from the human heart springs forth something that is supra-rational, meaning it's above any sort of rational criteria and it's super temporal, meaning above time again, it springs forth from that heart, this ground motive. And that ground motive is based upon, for the Christian, Dewey would call it the cre creation, fall, and 
restoration or redemption. That is the ground motive. That is what shapes reality. It shapes our experience. It shapes who we are. It shapes uh, everything about us. And for the unbeliever, other ground motives that stem from the heart produce other things. Dewey ever talked about the Greek uh, form, matter, dialectic, the struggle between Plato's ideals and the, the physical world. Um, Thomas Aquinas took Christian theology and melded it with Greek philosophy. So you had the nature, grace, dialectic, nature down here, grace upstairs, church subsumes it all. And then you had the modern structure of nature and freedom, uh, where you have the scientific fixed observational stuff of the scientific revolution, but also the freedom, wanting to be free, and those two poles are in dialectical tension. They can't be solved, and those are the ground motives that shape the ensuing worldviews that come, come in afterwards. But the human heart is what where all of that starts. Long before you get into Kantian metaphysics and you start to get into the existentialists and, and, and Descartes and Rousseau, and long before you get into any of that, at the very basic level, the human heart is where all of those things come from. And what's in that human heart shapes your world and life view. So reformational philosophy starts with that. The third thing is that all humanist philosophy, in other words, non-Christian philosophy, is an eminence philosophy whose absolute Archimedean point, which explains all of reality, is situated within time itself. So to, unbelieving thought is always imminent thought. It's only what we see in front of us. It does not consider the transcendency of God, the, the supra-temporal, supra-rational uh, faith that comes from the heart. It doesn't consider those things. It is merely imminence philosophy. That's Dewey Verd's critique of Kant. So the, the Archimedean point, the foundation, the absolute fixed starting point is within time. And for the rationalist, it was the mind. And that's what many of the philosophers struggle with. They thought the mind was the thing that man, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And because of that, X, Y, Z. And they would build a whole philosophy out of that, because it, but it was an imminence philosophy, which is prone to reduction. It's prone to, to uh, absolutizing all of creation into one could be rationalization, could be economic like Karl Marx, it could be um, Pythagoras with everything is number, everything is water, everything is something, and it's only built, you only have categories that are in the created order, that's why it's imminent. And I know this is a lot, but it's important. The fourth thing, the law structures of reality are irreversible and irreducible due to the a priori transcendent existence of the triune God who maintains these structures. So the law structures for numbers, for space, you think about physics, movement, the biotic aspect of life, there are law structures that are in place and they're irreversible, you can't change them. The creation is what it is despite climate alarmists. Um, it's irreducible, you can't just make one aspect the most important because they all work together. Uh, and, and all of that is because of the a priori, the a priori transcendent existence of the triune God. God maintains the structure of the universe. He maintains the structure of creation. Things are what they are because God maintains it. And the absolutizing of any one of those things, any aspect of creation, invariably creates an irreconcilable dialectic, meaning there is a tension between two poles I think Dewey Word was right. We're, we, the, the modern dialectical problem of nature and freedom, we've moved past scientific, who cares about the science, what is practical, what is, what, what is uh, furthering the status agenda, or what is free, freeing us up for sexual exploits, right? You know, amoratory ethics and all of this stuff. Uh, you, you can't get out of that dialectical tension because you're a, a human being made in God's image, stuck in time and in space. You can only see what you can see. You suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You refuse to acknowledge the God who has revealed himself in creation, who's revealed himself in his word and in his son. And because of that, you're stuck. You have no possible, re you have no recourse. 
The only recourse for those who hate God is death, Proverbs says. Those who hate me love death. But Christian philosophy says, no, we can acknowledge these law structures. We can acknowledge what God has put in place. We don't have to absolutize anything in creation because God is the absolute. And then the fifth aspect of reformational philosophy is reason, if it is to be faithful to God, is not autonomous. Man never reasons autonomously. Kant argued that you had to reason autonomously. But reason, if it is faithful to, to be faithful to God, is not autonomous, but can only be such when submitted to the revelation of God in both nature and scripture. If you want to reason uh, in the way God has designed you to reason, you can only do it when you're submitted to the revelation of God. And again, in nature, in scripture, and in Christ. That's the only possible way. You cannot reason autonomously. And when we think about engaging the world around us with these ideas and engaging them in apologetics and evangelism and the preaching of the gospel, the only way we can do it, and the only way we can win in doing it, because <laughs> the Spirit wins, the Spirit wins by drawing people to, to Christ, no doubt, but the only way that we can to do that is to point out the folly of unbelief, to point out the folly of trying to reason autonomously, to point out the folly of trying to absolutize any aspect of creation where it subsumes and, and brings everything else underneath it. Um, and, and we should know these things. And that's why I think reformational philosophy goes hand in hand with, with presuppositionalism. Uh, some of it's different language, but some of it's just different nuances. Uh, presuppositionalism doesn't really go too far into theoretical thought and some of the inconsistencies with eminence philosophy. But reformational philosophy doesn't really get into the nitty-gritty of, of a revelational epistemology either. And I think they work together, and that's why I included it in this, this, um, this conversation with Christian Reconstruction. And, uh, you know, the last aspect is abolitionism, which I'm not going to get into. You can go to abolition101.com to find more about that. You can visit christendommedia.com, my website, jasongarwa.com. You can find our sermons, crosscrownchurch.com, and of course, crosscrownradio.com. And I would put in there vacpt.org, a reminder for the Virginia Center for Public Theology as a project we're working on, actively working on. We want to engage the public in these spheres and, and teach people the comprehensive nature of the gospel. But this is Christian Reconstruction. Christian Reconstruction provides us with the mental, emotional, uh, theological, economic, and political uh, things, tools that we need in order to engage the world and win the world for Christ. And so, long episode today, but an important one. I wanted to at least explain myself and explain some of these things. And again, if you have questions, do not hesitate to reach out and ask. I'd love to help. You may find it useful to listen back over this to see you know, maybe a little bit more, maybe you missed something the first time. But either way, uh, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, thank you for tuning in and give us a rating if you can, Spotify or on iTunes, Google, and uh, hopefully we'll have another episode here coming up soon on Theonomy. Praying, Lord willing, for an opportunity for that. But that's it for, for us on this episode today. What is Christian Reconstruction? Hopefully I answered that question. Lots more we could have talked about but I think it's at least concise enough to grab some bits and pieces. Again, you can find that infographic I was talking about and walking through on Facebook. It's on my website as well. But that's it for us. Grace and peace. See you next time.